Titus chapter 1, verses 5 through 9. Such a joy to be in the house of God with God's people today. I'd like to thank everyone who was able to come out yesterday and to go out in the community with the Sun team, uh, who took the challenge to go and to share their faith. Praise God for those who did, and I praise God for the testimonies that we heard. Amen. You know that we just started a series preaching through Titus, uh, which we have labeled the connected and vibrant church as we read Paul's letter to Titus. We know that Titus is ministering on the island of Crete. Crete is one of the fifth largest islands currently and is the largest Greek island. So this is Paul writing a letter to his dear child in the faith, Titus, encouraging him and his mission there. Starting at verse 5, the precious, authentic, and errant, sufficient, and mighty word of God reads, This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination, for an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. You may be seated in the name of Jesus. Today we want to talk, uh, continue the series as we talk about the importance of qualified elders, the importance of qualified Elders, And we see uh, Paul continues to talk to Timothy after his introduction, after he has revealed to Timothy just what a servant and apostle looks like, one who is called by God, is one who is committed and who has a desire for the lost, uh, one who is committed to equipping the saints and edifying them by pointing to this hope that we have in eternal life. And now he starts off and he says, listen, he, he, he tell, shows or tells Timothy the reason that he left him in Crete. He says, this is why I left you in Crete. This is why I left you on this big island to do a great big task for a big God. And he says, so that you might put what remained into order. Timothy, uh, Titus, I left you in Crete so that you might put what remained into order. Now, what's interesting about this phrase, so that you might put what remained into order, is that in the Greek, it's one word, okay? It's one word, and that word is epidiathro, epidiathro. Epa, the first part, upon. Dio, through, orthro, means to uh, make straight. Uh, that word orthro is where we get the word uh, in which we can junk, put together with donis, orthodonis. And orthodonis is a a person who does dental work and who realigns teeth, okay? 
or the word orthopedic. Uh, one who is an orthopedic is one who realigns bones or sets bones back. So Paul is giving us a, a great uh, word picture, and, and he's telling Titus, he's saying, listen, I left you in Crete that you might put what remains in order, that you might straighten up that which was crooked, that you might put it back into place, just as a dentist uh, looks at a person's teeth who wants work on their teeth and begins to reconstruct their teeth to, to fit comfortably and to, to fit beautifully. So God has commanded Titus through Paul to put what, re, put to, to straighten out what's going on in the churches in Crete, the churches that's all around this island in the Mediterranean Sea. Titus is under an apostolic commission to go and to correct. And this letter is all about how he is to correct. It's all about how he is to go. It's about what, he's, what he needs to do. And, and there's two primary things that we see throughout this letter that we'll be returning back to to do that. One is to preach sound doctrine, which we'll talk about. And the second is to do what he goes on and says. And he says, and, and to appoint elders in every town as I directed you. The way in which Timothy is going to straighten out this church, this bone, the way that he's going to help everything to look better and to work better is by appointing elders in every town. He is literally going to be going around to every town that is on this island, meeting with the churches, and the churches probably were meeting in people's homes and people's houses. So he was to spend time going into these house churches Spending time with the leaders and spending time with the members and looking for those who would be appointed and set apart as elders. This was a, a huge task that Titus was going to be able to do because Titus was uh, empowered by the Holy Spirit and commissioned by the Apostle Paul. So Titus is not really a, a pastor in a traditional sense. And he's not really an elder in a, in a traditional sense. Him and Paul has, has been, been called to, to kind of set those things in order. Set those things in order. So what is an elder? What, what is an elder? Uh, well, as we look throughout the scriptures, we see that the word elder can be used in a number of different ways. And one way that it's used is it, it, it commonly refers to an older person. Uh, we see that throughout the Old Testament and New Testament. We see the word elder in our English Bibles, they can refer to one who is older. It also can refer uh, to an official, specifically uh, one who is in Judaism or who is a Jew. Uh, when we see the Bible in the New Testament talk about elders, often it talked about people who uh, held a, a position of prestige in the Sanhedrin. But here, specifically in this context, and what the Apostle Paul has done, he has taken this common phrase that was used by the Jews to talk about an older person of prestige, an older person who is to be respected. And he's taken this common phrase that says, well, this is what I want you to do. I want you to set elders in place. And, and this elder is no longer just talking about a person who is of an older age, but this, this word elder is referring to God-ordained men who oversee and who shepherd the flock of God. God-ordained men who oversee and who shepherd the flock of God. And I said men who shepherd the flock of God because Paul is gender specific. Uh, he is gender specific when he's talking about elders. 
So we see also throughout the New Testament that the term elder is used synonymously and also interchangeably uh, in the Bible with the words overseer, pastor, and bishop. So when we see the words overseer, when we see the words pastor, and when we see the words bishop, Paul is talking about the same office. Okay? So he's talking about the, the same office. So he's telling Titus to go throughout this island to appoint elders, to appoint God-ordained men who oversee and who shepherd the flock. And this text that we're looking at today, the main point of it is this, is that strong gospel-centered churches, they don't happen by mistake. They don't happen by chance. They happen as a result of the church having strong, God-centered, Christ-centered elders, Christ-centered men who take seriously the task of shepherding God's flock. Churches today that are thriving, that are kingdom advancing, that are pushing the gospel and making an impact in their communities and in this world are doing so because they have followed God's order of leadership. God's order of leadership. So Paul starts off with Titus and he says, put these things into order, appoint elders in every town as I directed you. And then he's going to go and he's going to show us some qualifications of elders, some qualifications of pastors, what the Bible, what God expects pastors and elders to look like. And we want to be mindful of this. As we look throughout our culture, as we look throughout our church, we want to be mindful of what God expects an elder, a pastor, an overseer to look like. And he starts off by saying that an overseer to Titus, he says, listen, is one, if, if anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife. So I could just see Titus running around with this to contemporize it with his little briefcase and setting up meetings and, and coffee shops with people he think may have a chance of being an elder. And uh, Paul is saying, listen, when you do that, remember that the person that you're looking for is to be above reproach. Now, what does it mean to be above reproach? I love the NIV translation, the KJV translation of this verse because it puts it clear. It says uh, to be above reproach means to be blameless. It means to be blameless. It means to be blameless. That's right, Mr. Moisture. I said I love the NIV's translation of this. <laughs> Amen. I guess I'm not an ES vegan anymore. Now, when we hear that word blameless, we often think about perfection. Uh, hear the word blameless. Well, a pastor and overseer needs to be perfect. And that's not what Paul is saying at all. If Paul was saying that a pastor or overseer had to be perfect, then no one would stand a chance. In fact, Paul wouldn't even stand a chance. Early on, he writes a letter to Corinth, to the church at Corinth, and he uh, says, listen, he says, I am the least. Of all, of all the apostles. Um, he said, I, I feel like I am the least worthy of the ministry that I've received. Because then he recognized that he, he was a sinner, that he was not perfect. He was blameless, but he was not perfect. And later on in his ministry, he, he writes again and he says these words. So early he says, I'm at least among the apostles. Later on in his ministry, he says, listen, not only am I the least among the apostles, but I am the chief of all sinners. Now, Paul wasn't worshiping his depravity. 
by saying that he was the chief of all sinners, what he's saying is, I live with myself. Um, I see and I hear my thoughts. And I don't know other people's thoughts. But I know the things that I'm tempted to think and the way that I'm tempted to think at some times. And I know that I'm, I'm a bigger sinner than anybody else I know because I can count and I can think about my sins. All I have to do is stop and to meditate. I am the chief among all sinners. And that's what the gospel does. The gospel reorganizes our thought process. It reorganizes our life. And it makes us humble to say, you know, that person over there, yes, they may be walking outside of the will of God, but boy, I am sure capable of doing that myself. And because I know me, I'm the chief among all sins. So he's not saying that an elder must be perfect, pastor must be perfect, but he's saying he must be blameless. He's saying... Titus, go and find men that are Christian. Go and find men whose testimony don't snuff out the gospel. Go and find men whose personal walk does not contradict what God has commanded. Go and find men who are committed to loving me and to living an exemplary way. Go and find men who do not have valid objections. Standing before them as they preach to people that that people aren't thinking, oh, my goodness, how is he telling me this when he does this? Go and find men who have received an internal call from God and who have received an external call from the people that they serve, where people are looking at him and saying this man is truly called by God, not because he's perfect. Not because he's the most educated, but because he recognizes God's grace and he recognizes how great the gospel is. Go and find these men for me. Men who are blameless. Men who are blameless. You know, that's why there's so much chaos in the church at Crete. Y'all thought I was about to go there, didn't you? That's why there's so much chaos at the Church of Crete, because they have not elected God-ordained men to do the teaching. They have not elected qualified men. Look at what Titus is dealing with. Look at the 10th verse. He says, for there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party, they must be silent since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not teach. So in these churches in Crete, they were being led by Judaizers. They were being led by people who say, yeah, we received the gospel, who were, but who were holding on to the law of Moses and who was making it hard to be saved, who was narrowing in and preaching on things that really does not matter, that that doesn't make one a Christian or not. They were being taught by men whose lifestyle was contradicting the gospel. And we're going to deal with those verses 10 through, through 16 next week or in a couple weeks. But he said, go and find men that's not like that. 
Church of Crete was in chaos. Evidently, the families in Crete were in chaos. Even the Christian families were just struggling so much because they weren't receiving sound doctrine. They did not have a sound example before them. If we're going to build a strong church here at Forest Baptist Church, we must value God's qualifications for elders, for ministers. We can't lower the standards. If we're going to be vibrant, if we're going to be connected, we have to find men who look like this. And and we see here in verse 6, Paul is going to begin to show us what these qualifications look like. And the first thing we're going to look at today is that the qualified, we're going to look at the qualified elders' family life. We're going to look at the qualified elders' family life. Family life. And he starts off, he goes, he continues and says, if anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife. So he starts off by talking about how the elder, elder's home look. And he says the, the elder must value his wife. He must be the husband, the, the husband of one wife, literally a one-woman man. <laughs> he says if one desires to be a pastor, overseer, or bishop, he must be a one-woman man, meaning he cannot be a polygamist. Okay? Cannot be a polygamist. And I have sister wives type of thing going on. And not only can he not be a polygamist, he also uh, cannot be a playboy. I think that is what Paul is getting at with Timothy. He can't be a playboy. He can't have his wife and then have women on the side or girlfriends. Uh, Paul is saying he must be sexually pure. He must be a man of integrity. And I don't think that Paul is just talking about just a, an outward morality. I think Paul is also, this encompasses an a, a inward change. Uh, it encompasses that, that this elder must not be one who is just lusting after women. He's one who's fighting the desire to, to look at worthless things. He's one who's fighting the desire to, to flirt. Pastors should not flirts and be flirtatious. Shouldn't be winking the eye and giving extra long hugs and counseling the same person over and over and over. He must be one that that prays, P-R-A-Y-S, not prays, P-R-E-Y-S. Because he must be a, a, a one a one woman, woman man. You know, there's a lot of debate around this verse about when we see this, this one woman man, so to speak. We, uh, there's some debate about whether or not a, a pastor uh, is qualified if, if he's been divorced. Uh, some people say, well, this is a, make an argument. This is saying that a, a pastor cannot be a pastor if he's been divorced because he only needs to be married in his lifetime to one woman. I think that we can make an argument about that and, arg- and, 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 and have, hold a position. I just don't think that this is the verse to do that. I think that uh, Paul is writing, in, in writing Titus, he's not making an argument about divorce. I think he's getting at the point that he needs to be one who is sexually pure, one who loves and esteems his wife, and everyone can, can see that. Now, I do think that we can make that argument from what we just read, that the, that the pastor is to be above reproach or blameless to the people that he's ministering to, that there should be no valid objection in which they can point at 
and use that as a stumbling block in their own walk, which means that if a pastor has a divorce um, that is, is public, and if it's a result of him neglecting his household, then he should not be able to pastor. In fact, I think that most situations will call for a pastor who has been divorced not to pastor. I just said most, not all. There may be a situation or circumstance where before he was called to the ministry, he was divorced. Or while he was in the ministry, his wife just forsaked the gospel, and maybe it was just something that was so evident to everybody that, that it was not him, it was her. But I don't think we should make that, that point. I think that the point that Paul is making to Titus is that there should be nothing standing in between the word of God being delivered. Nothing. How can, a, how can a, a pastor promote and train people to, to, uh, to love the family and to love marriage and to treat a wife in the same way that Christ treats the church, to love her that way if he's not loving his own wife? If he's not loving his own wife. Pastor's marriage should be a picture of God's grace. Then he goes on to say children. He, he focuses on the, the elders' children. He says, and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. So then he goes and he says, an elder, a pastor, an overseer, a, a, a bishop, his, his children need to look a certain way as well. They're not to be given over to debauchery, which is a, a wild lifestyle. And they're not to be insubordinate. They're not to be uh, known as being disobedient. Now, I believe that we should pause here and just, just look at this and talk about this, what, what Paul is, is not saying. I don't believe that Paul is saying that an elder is disqualified if he does not have children who are in Christ, period. I think that what Paul is saying is that uh, for an elder's children not to be following Christ, and for an elder's child to be, to be wild and to be insubordinate, should be an exception to the rule and not the rule. If an elder has five children and all five of his children are buck wild and none of them have come to the Lord, there is a huge problem. Because there's something at home that's not going right. If an elder cannot influence his own home, how can he influence the heart of a lost person or the people in the church? And that's what Paul said in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 8, when he's talking about an elder in the parallel passage. He said he must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he? How will he take care of God's church? So, so Titus, when he's going to look for elders, he's not only just to be looking at the, the outward appearance, but he's to be investigating his home life, looking at his house, seeing if things are in order, if his children have a, a heart of submissiveness and obedience, and, and if they are learning and understanding the gospel better. Now, when he says children here, the Greek word that he uses in Greek is not specifically talking about a, a young child. It's the same word, that uh, derivative of the same word that Paul uses earlier when he talks about Titus, a grown man. He says to Titus, my son, in the common faith. So here when he says child, he can very well be talking about his grown-up children as well. His grown-up children. Just the, the gospel that he preaches over the pulpit should be the gospel that he's preaching in his house. And it should be changing people's hearts in his house. 
Those who are closest to him should be seeing God through him. And at some point, they should surrender their lives to him and say, I want to follow Christ again. There may be an exception to the rule as we look at the totality of Scripture. We cannot change the heart of a person. God changes the heart of a person. And there may be situations where God has not done that yet. Then he goes on after talking about the elders' children and wife and the family life and the home life. He says these words, for an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. An overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. So we see him using elder earlier. Now he's using the term overseer in the Greek, episkopos, bishop. And literally this word means uh, it is, is one who sees over or who watches over others. Uh, in the Greek culture, a Greek, they would have heard this word and they would have probably thought of a picture of a pagan god watching over those who are worshiping at the temple. Uh, they would have thought about, a, had a picture of a, a, a pagan god who, who is watching over their worshipers and who's watching over the, the entire nation. This was a word that was often thrown around in their culture. So Paul uses this word because he's, I believe he's talking to Titus, who is Greek, who comes from a Gentile background, and he's using this word to talk about the, the elders or, or those who are called to be pastors in order that Timothy may get the weight of the responsibility that an elder has. They are to be watching over the people of God, overseeing them, taking notice of their life, of their habits, of their strengths, of their weaknesses. Then I like how he goes on and he continues to say, for an overseer as God's steward, as God's steward, as God's steward. Back in their culture, they had, uh, most masters had what was called house stewards. And house stewards were people who literally uh, took care of their master's house. They were in charge of their master's house. And a house steward or a steward of the master's house was normally a, a slave who had favor with the master, or a former slave. It's interesting when we read Genesis chapter 39 and we read about the life of of Joseph. Uh, Once Joseph had been sold into slavery, we see that he rises and he becomes Pharaoh's house steward. He's in charge of keeping all the things that's going on in Pharaoh's house because Pharaoh found favor with him. And we remember, if you remember the story about how uh, Pharaoh fell out of favor with him when uh, Potiphar fell out of favor with him when his wife brought up a bogus uh, sexual charge against him, and he was thrown into prison. So Joseph was a house steward. He was uh, in charge of watching over Potiphar's goods, in charge of making sure that all the other house slaves were doing their job, and, and in charge of making sure the food tastes good and the lawn was kept and, and everything was in order. Well, God, through the Apostle Paul, is saying that this is a job of a pastor one who is qualified. He's not only watching over his own house, he's not only managing his own home, but he's managing the, the household of God. He's a steward of God's house. He's responsible for the day-to-day operations of the house. J.E. Huffer says these words, the fact that an elder is referred to as God's steward is noteworthy. The elder is clearly considered to be God's servant. He is to do God's work, and he is ultimately accountable to God for his performance. For his performance. 
Same thing that Paul talks about in uh, Acts chapter 20 when he's leaving the church at Ephesus and he's talking to the elders and he reminds the elders that they are overseers of God's flock. That one day they will have to give account to how they kept the flock of God, how they kept the house of God. He continues as he now is focusing on the personality and the character of an elder, the one who's watching over the flock. He says he must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain. So he goes on, and first he shows the negative qualities, qualities that he should not have. And the first quality, he says, he cannot have the LeBron James syndrome. Excuse me. Come on. LeBron did it to himself. He's on TV, ESPN. He's getting ready to announce where he's going. And he says, I think I'm going to take my talents to Miami. My talents. And everybody's like, what? Who says that? (laughs) And obviously, an elder does not get up in the morning and say, I think I'm taking my talents to the church. I think I'm taking my talents to, he doesn't speak of himself in the same way or think of himself in the same way as an athlete thinks of himself. He's not walking around uh, confident in his flesh or confident in his own gift. And he's not arrogant. He's not stuck on himself. The gospel has come into his heart. It has rearranged his heart and it is making him more humble day by day. The gospel is doing that. He's not comparing himself to other preachers. He's comparing himself to God. And when he compares himself to God, to Jesus, to Jesus' ministry, he's humbled. He's understanding that everything that he has received is a gift. And if it is a gift, he cannot boast. For how can he boast on something that has been given by God? How can you boast on a gift that you received from your family for your birthday? If you know that you could not afford that gift in the first place, you're going to be humble like, man, (laughs) this was a gift. My family gave me this. I couldn't afford this. He says he must not be arrogant. He must not be quick-tempered. I have a fast temper. I remember talking to a young lady who doesn't stay in the state once about her family growing up as a, as a PK, and I just specifically remember her just always talking, she just was constantly talking about her mother, and our mother really led her to the faith, and her mother's faith, and I said, well, wasn't your father a pastor, wasn't he a preacher? She said, yes, and uh, praise God for him, but he had a, a quick temper, he had a, a problem with anger. Must not be a drunkard, obviously. Must not be violent, Must not be quick to fight, he shouldn't be calling out his members to the parking lot to fight. Must not be greedy for gain. Must not be greedy for gain. See, so many ministers tempted and and Satan is is, is working on them in the area of of women, of lust, and then the area of of money. Paul tells Timothy the same thing in a parallel passage. He says he must not be a lover of money. A lover of money. And we got countless examples of we hear about people embezzling money. Politicians doing it. This is a sad thing when we see an elder doing it. 
So a person who's called to the ministry is a person who has forsaken the wealth of this world. They're not in love with things. They're not chasing the wind. They're not trying to keep up with the Joneses. They understand that their reward will be given to them in heaven. As 1 Peter says, that one day they will receive a crown from God. They're not living for prestige. They're not preaching for prestige. They're not preaching to be wealthy or to have a mansion. And this is not to, 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 to beat up elders. We're going to encourage them in a second. But, but I remember specifically talking to one guy one time. We were at a conference, and he was a young pastor. We was a, I was actually a couple years older than him at the time, and this was years ago. And i never forget, he says, man, one day I'm going to pull up to a church in a limousine, and there's going to be a line of people waiting to hear me preach. It's not the heart of a pastor. It's not the heart of an elder. The pastor shows up on a donkey if he has to. Because Jesus shows up on a donkey. And he shows positive states. He says he must be hospitable. He must be welcoming. He must be, be warm. He must be a lover of good. He must be self-controlled. He must be upright. He must be disciplined. Saying, Titus, when you go and you look for elders to, to pastor these house churches and to pastor these churches, make sure that they love people and they love being around people and they love good. Interview them. Check their motives. Make sure they're not using the word I too much. Make sure they're welcoming and they love sheep. A shepherd that does not love sheep will abandon sheep. Ezekiel chapter 34, they will smite the sheep and wear their wool. They will run when wolves come. When wolves come. You know, and this is what Satan loves to do. Satan loves to do this. He loves to find churches that don't hold to these qualifications. He loves to find churches that want to be wooed by a charismatic speaker, a creative speaker, who is talented. And these churches call this talented person in without really interviewing them because they make them happy. And then what happens, and what we see a lot of times, is this person who doesn't preach the word or doesn't really hold on to the word, but who's depending upon their own charisma rather than the word of God to make a change. This person's heart continues to get lifted up in pride. This person falls into sin. And then right at the height of that sin, right when he thinks no one knows about it, right when he thinks he's getting away with it, Satan uncovers it. He pulls back the cover. And then this, this elder, this pastor, is on TV explaining why he believes homosexuality is okay and why he went to a man rather than his wife. Or he's facing charges for embezzling money. A Satan's scheme. And what does that do to the body of Christ? All those who are watching on TV, says, I told you there's nothing about, real about Christianity. There's nothing really about Christianity. This is, this is what Christians are. Let's look at their leaders. There's no real thing to Jesus. All, all preachers are, are pimps and embezzlers. 
All they want to do is drive around in a fancy Cadillac and be served. But you know, that's not what a preacher is called to be. That's not what an elder is called to be. That's not what an overseer is called to be. They're called to be this. God has not designed that to be the case. Now, we must also give credence and admit to the fact that uh, the culture looks to pounce on those examples. I've met more godly pastors and elders than I have non-godly pastors. I've met more men who are committed to the gospel than I have men who are not committed to the gospel. But it's the ones who are not committed that's going to get the front page of the story. why pastors, ministers, elders, those who are in training, those who desire, who feel a call from the Lord and who's training, we have to make sure that we are praying for these characteristics in our own heart and that we're fighting for them daily. Because Satan is waiting. He's a roaring lion. He's just waiting to kill your example. Third, the qualified elder's commitment is to sound doctrine. It's to sound doctrine. It's the sound doctrine. He goes on and he says he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction to sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. And this is really what separates an elder in a Christian church that is called by God from a priest or a minister of any other faith (laughs) is that they hold on to the Bible. There are men of other faiths that are moral or have an outward morality who treat their wives well, who are not quick-tempered, who are hospitable. But they are not holding on to the gospel. The gospel is what separates an elder from from any other position. It's the fact that they they are holding on to what they have received. They have been separated because they have put their faith and trust in a Savior. In Jesus, they understand that their works is not what saves them, it's not what shapes them, it is Jesus. Like what he says, he said, hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught. Hold firm, hold on to the word. Don't get caught up in this quick prosperity gospel. Hold firm to what you have been taught. Hold firm to what the apostles teach in the Bible. Hold firm. Then he goes on and says, give instruction in sound doctrine. Give instruction in sound doctrine. We talked about last week how uh, a pastor is called to impart knowledge. He's called to preach and to teach in a way that makes people healthy, not necessarily happy. But see, if you preach and if we teach and if we hold to the word of God and just explain the word of God and give instructions from the word of God and, and teach the, about God's grace, it will make people healthy. And when people become healthy, those who are his sheep, those who are God's sheep, when they become healthy, they will become happier because they will be filled with joy. And even when they are convicted at the word of God, they won't be angry, upset, but they'll be, they'll be ecstatic because God has shown them a part of their heart. He has given them the grace to see that this is an area that I'm still shaping you in, that I'm still working with you in. When we don't feel convicted at the, when the word of God is preached, That's when we need to fall on our faces. We need to fall to our knees and we need to beg God to stir up the spirit in our hearts and to make our hearts receptive to the gospel. He's saying, 
hold firm to sound doctrine. The word sound literally means healthy in the Greek. Hold on to healthy doctrine. Don't let it go. Preach to impart knowledge about our Savior. About our Savior. That's what he told Titus, uh, Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 3 through 5. He says, I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day, as I remember your tears, I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. I, I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Louise and your mother Eunice, and now I'm sure that it dwells in you. He points back to the deposit that has been entrusted to him, back to his, his, his mother and his grandparents' faith. Then he says in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 3 through 4, as I urge you when I was in Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine nor to devote themselves to myths and, and endless genealogy which promotes speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. He says, I urge you to remain in Ephesus, Timothy, and not to get caught up in any different doctrine. Because the church is built on sound preaching. Great singing is wonderful, but sound preaching is where it's at. Great ushering is wonderful, but sound preaching is where it's at. We sing about what we preach. We serve, we usher, we, 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 we do our, our ministries and our auxiliaries because we have received a, a word that is pure, a word that has ignited our hearts. Keep watch of yourself, he told Timothy. Andrew, teach and persist in these things. For by doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. You know, a pastor is like a an antivirus protector on a computer. If you have an antivirus protector on your computer, you know that that antivirus program, it scans the computer constantly, and it opens up the files on the computer to make sure that there's not a virus seeping and growing throughout your documents and throughout your, your things. And it does that because it has a dictionary that it has been, has been put in it, a dictionary. And, and his dictionary has all the codes to all the common viruses. And, and that antivirus, the way that you really keep it up is, is you need to go online and you need to update it and to learn the new viruses that's coming and it is able to catch it and to protect your computer. Well, that's what elders are. They are those who are studying the word of God with such an intensity who have devoted their lives to God's word and God's doctrine. And when they hear things and when they see things that are unhealthy in the lives of believers, when they see things that are unhealthy in the church, when they hear doctrines and theologies like Rob Bell, and when they hear that books are out like the shack, they, they read those things and they begin to dialogue with people and say, well, well, do you really believe that this is what the Bible teaches? No, this is not what the Bible teaches. This is where we stand. I've got Nordens and McAfee sitting right here. Antivirus protection. So how do we respond to this as, as God's people? How do we respond to seeing these lists? Well, we do a couple things. Number one, we respond by making sure that we hold elders accountable and we take the office seriously. As the church of Christ, 
We hold elders responsible and we make sure that, that they're accountable. Make sure that they're accountable. When someone comes into our flock and says they're a minister from so-and-so and out of town, we make sure that we interview them. We make sure that we don't just take their word and put them in the pulpit and have them start preaching. We make sure that we get in their heads, we get in their hearts, that we do our best to search and to see where they are. We do that by, by the, the elders that's among you, by myself and, and the other elders. It's, it's your job to, to make sure that you're making sure that they are accountable and looking for these qualities. And if they don't have these qualities and are falling short of these qualities and it's hindering you from your word, that you lovingly go to them and discuss it with them and let them know that this is, this is not holding up good. If they don't listen, you go to a deacon and you, and you discuss it with them. So we hold them accountable. Number two, by loving our elders. By loving our elders. And how do we love our elders? We love our elders, number one, by diligently praying for them. By praying for them. This text causes us to pray for those whom the Lord has called to shepherd the flock. And Paul puts a great emphasis on this in in Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians, verses 3, 1 through 10. He says, finally, brothers, pray for us that the message of our Lord may spread rapidly and be honored just as it was with you. He tells the church at Thessalonica to pray for them, and he does this to the church at Ephesus in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 19. He says, pray for us. And what are we praying? Pray that the gospel be preached, and pray that it spread rapidly. I like what he says in, in Ephesians. He says, pray that it be preached fearlessly. Then he goes on. In verse 2 he says, and pray that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men. For not everyone has faith. Not only pray that the gospel be preached, but pray that we be delivered from the evil one. Pray that we be delivered from people who are trying to to kill us and trying to make our testimony to look bad. How often do you pray for your elders, for those who are qualified? Pray for them. Pray for us. I beg you to pray for us. Spiritual warfare is heightened when one stands behind a pulpit and proclaims the mystery of God. Because God sees, because Satan sees that person and says, if I can get this person to fall, I can take out 10 to 15 members of his church easily. I can discourage the body easily. Spiritual warfare is heightened. Satan's going to try to attack from every single angle. He's going to try to lift his heart up in pride. Pray through these qualities for those who, who serve you. Love them by praying for them. Team up with them. And how do we team up with them? We team up with them by, by number one, by obeying them. By obeying them. Obeying them for their joy. Meaning not seeking to be insubordinate for the sake of being insubordinate. And I'm not saying this just to be saying it, but this is what the Bible teaches. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 7. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls. Overseer, they're watching over your souls. Watching over your souls. As those who will have to give account. I'm not going to obey them because I've got to watch them because I don't trust them. If you don't trust your elders or your leaders, I pray that you would talk to them, that you would pray with them, and then that you would go somewhere where you do trust them. Because if you can't trust the hand that feeds you, you're not going to enjoy the meal. And if you're not going to enjoy the meal, you're not going to grow. They are going to give account. One day I'm going to stand before a great God, and I'm going to have to give account of how serious I took his word. God says, leave the knucklehead pastor up to me. I'll take care of him. Don't obey him into sin. 
When you see something that's unbiblical, no, you don't obey that. But you obey him when you know that he's on mission for the Lord. And let them do this with joy, not with groaning. For that wouldn't be to your advantage. Have you ever heard the angry preacher? The preacher who makes his sermons to get back at the church? Everybody in church knows that there's an issue that went on at the board meeting or the business meeting. His next sermon is about why they should listen to him. You don't have joy listening because he's upset. You don't want to upset waiters, right? We don't upset our waiters, right? Our food may be cold, you know? And we say, hey, man, my food's a little cold. Man, you know, really not enjoying the food. It's cold. You think, think you can take it back and warm it up, please? Thank you so much. Why are you saying thank you so much? Why are you being very careful? Because you know that plate is going to be in the back. And you don't know a whole lot about that person. And you don't want a hawk. You know a hawk. You don't want that hawk to occur. So you... Saying when you find qualified elders, qualified leaders, love them by praying for them, love them by submitting to them. Also, love them by using your gifts towards the vision that the Lord has given them. God has gifted every single person in this church who has the Holy Spirit. He has made you uniquely in order that you would fit into his body. He has given you grace to serve. He's given you gifts. And your gifts are to be a a part of the upbuilding of this church. Let your pastors know what your gift is, what your desires is, what you love to do. And say, how can I be effective? How can I plug in? How can this be used at this church? Finally, one way you can encourage them is by is by encouraging them without using flattery. One way you can love your elders is by encouraging them without using flattery. Uh, I just sense a lot of flattery, and flattery is excessive praise. And what excessive praise does is it lifts up, a, it, it, it tempts a person to become prideful. And I think as the, the, the sheep of God, we need to learn to encourage our elders, say, you know, that sermon, elder, it really, it really touched me. It really put some things on my mind. Thank you for faithfully studying. I appreciate that, and I'm praying for you. It's not about saying, oh, my goodness, you make T.D. Jakes look like T.D. Fakes. Oh, my goodness, you should be a mega church. Pa- oh, my goodness. What are you doing here? You need your own church. I think when we do that, we set men up to fail. We put them up on a pedestal that they're not to be put up on. We say, thank you as we would to a waiter. And we don't have to say it every time. We let them know, thank you. I appreciate it. This text ultimately should call us to, to worship God. And this is why it should cause you and it should cause me to worship God. It should cause us to worship God, to adore God, to love God, to magnify God. Because in this text, we can see the love of God for his people. The love of God is displayed in this text. You want to know how? It's because God has called qualified people to take care of us. He told Paul through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, make sure that the elders of your church look like this, because I really love my sheep. How much God loves you. Look how much God loves you. He says, I don't want anybody feeding you. I don't want just anybody serving. I want men who are striving, who, number one, have these qualities when they're called, but number two, who are striving to go deeper in these qualities. 
who year by year are becoming more hospitable, who year by year who are, are appreciating good works even more. That's God's love for you. You know, just as a parent, just as a parent, when they're getting ready to take their child, if they take their child to daycare or, or give them to a babysitter, just as a parent is, is careful with who keeps their child because they love that child. So is God careful with who keeps us. And ultimately, this is just a picture of an of a even more beautiful picture of how God, when he called us to be saved, how he did not send Moses. Because Moses was not qualified to do a work that would save us. And he did, not, he did not send David. And he did not send Paul. He did not send Peter. But he sent the one who was qualified. He sent Jesus, the one who was blameless, the one who was eternal, to die upon a rugged cross, to suffer pain, to take our sins upon his shoulders that we might have life. And the reason he doesn't send unqualified people to do his work is because he wants to make sure the job gets done and make sure that people see how much he loves them. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your love. What a deep, deep love you have for us. A great love, Father God, that you have called elders, men who are committed to living according to your standard, men who are committed to learning and going deeper in your word and in the gospel in order that they may refute false teachers and help people to become healthy. Father God, we are thankful for that call, for that commission that you did not leave us wondering what a pastor should look like. We thank you, Father God, for you calling us to be a vibrant church. Thank you, Father. Help us, Father God, to see these qualities, to love our elders, not only at this church, but at every church who are qualified, to pray for them diligently. In Jesus' name, amen.